Welcome to another episode of Nashville Anthems, dissecting 80s and 90s country music. This one played in by Plain Town Trailers, playing at a honky-tonk near you. Go check them out. I'm your host, Melton McMainerberry, and you've found yourself 14 episodes in to a long-term project that wants to pop the cap off of a mystery that the back of my mind has been sipping on for years. What exactly makes 80s and 90s country music work in the particular way that it does? Our method here is to taste the cocktail one ingredient at a time through close examination of the songs played on Satellite Radio's 80s and 90s country music station. This time, Satellite Radio has pulled us off the county road to hydrate ourselves among the friendly locals of Garth Brooks' 1997 honky-tonk duet with Steve Warner, Long Neck Bottle, the opening track and lead single from his album, Sevens. So the album Sevens was Garth Brooks's, you guessed it, seventh studio album, and it was released in 1997. Get it? In his discography, it falls between the album Fresh Horses and his ultimate masterpiece, In the Life of Chris Gaines. Okay, actually, I've never heard that album. For all I know, I'd actually love it. Maybe it is his masterpiece, but it's fair to say that its reputation is not very good. Anyway, I have heard Fresh Horses, although I admit it's been many years, but I specifically remember asking for the CD for Christmas one year, I guess that would have been 1995, and getting it from my grandparents. My grandparents gave it to me. And I listened to it immediately, probably on the way home from their house, if I remember correctly. And the truth is, I was disappointed. Now, I will go to bat for all of Garth Brooks's first five albums. That's his self-titled album, Garth Brooks, No Fences, Rope in the Wind, The Chase, and In Pieces. I think they're all some of the best country albums I've ever heard, especially No Fences and Rope in the Wind. But Fresh Horses felt a little off, like the je ne sais quoi that made its predecessors work wasn't quite there. The fact that it's je ne sais quoi, by the way, is why this podcast exists. I don't think this was all of it, or even probably the majority of it for me, but part of it may have been that Fresh Horses felt a little too mid-90s pop and not quite as in touch with its country roots as the albums that came before it. I think you see that in its two singles that went to number one. Those are She's Every Woman and Beaches of Cheyenne. Remember those? Now, as I've said before, murdering on Music Row is not really a big deal to me, but I know it is for others. And with that in mind, I do think it's fair to say that Garth Brooks reversed course on sevens, and deliberately went more straightforward country with the style of that album than he did on Fresh Horses. If you still don't believe me, take a look at the cover of Fresh Horses and the cover of Sevens, and I think you'll see what I mean. But also, compare those poppy Fresh Horses singles with the two that went to number one from Sevens. Those are Two Pina Coladas and the song we're looking at today, Long Neck Bottle, and the contrast is pretty striking if you do that. So, keep that in mind as we explore some of the key features of Long Neck Bottle that define it. I think it is important. But, let's pause before we get too deep into the song itself and give credit where credit is due. Beyond what I've just mentioned, let's note that Long Neck Bottle was not written by Brooks, but by his vocal partner and acoustic guitarist on this song, the legendary Steve Warriner. 
along with Rick Carnes. Long Neck Bottle, the single, went to number one on the U.S. country charts and spent the holidays there for three weeks in 1997 and 1998. And the song was produced by longtime Garth Brooks producer Alan Reynolds. Okay, well finally, let's order up another round and get into the meat of this song by examining some of the key features that make it what it is. The first key feature I want to mention is the western swing rhythm that this song has. I think that style does a couple of things. First, it makes the song dancey. It makes you want to dance, especially the instrumental section with the Steve Warner acoustic guitar solo in the middle, which, not coincidentally, is the section that precedes the line that directly addresses the dance floor. Now, okay, swing is a loaded term that can mean a lot of different things, but at its most basic, like the thing that has to be true for a style to be called swing at all, is that the upbeats have to be delayed a little bit. Rather than splitting the difference between the amount of time between downbeats, you have to have a little bit of a delay. I think I demonstrated this briefly in the Lord Have Mercy on the Working Man episode, but it's this. One and two and three and four and one and two and three and four and versus this. One and two and three and four and one and two and three and four and or faster, closer to the tempo of Long Neck Bottle, one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four and hey, that's underneath my feet. versus one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four and the former being a fast swing beat, the latter being a fast straight beat. So that delayed upbeat you hear in there, it feels looser and dancier somehow, right? It feels lighter on its feet, feels more like skipping or hopping than just walking. There must be some physiological reason for this that's way out of my lane, but it does feel to me like the repetitive sort of body movements you make when you dance feel naturally more swingy than straight in terms of their rhythm. And so interestingly, I think the downbeats being so straight, the straight one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, four on the floor bass pattern in the song adds to this effect as well, as in you feel the delayed upbeat more because the downbeats are so straight and strong. But if you notice, the bass drum doesn't mimic what the bass guitar is doing there, which is uncommon. Usually the bass guitar and the bass drum play virtually identical rhythms in music, but listen closely to Long Neck Bottle, and you may notice that the bass drum is only hitting on one and three, while the bass guitar, as I said, plays on each beat, one, two, three, four. In fact, as a whole, the drum kit is really playing a cut-time beat. We talked about cut-time in one of our previous Garth Brooks episodes, the one on Ain't Going Down Till the Sun Comes Up. Cut-time being a naturally energetic beat. So you've got light-footed swing emphasized by relentless four-on-the-floor bass guitar and high-energy cut-time all mashed together in this beat. And I think it's undeniable that this song has a dancey vibe as a result. I mean, I can't dance my way out of a wet paper bag. That's why I play in the band. And even I can't resist moving when I listen to this song. Let go of my hand. mirror on the wall, go So the second thing I hear this Western swing rhythm doing is related to something we're going to get more into in a moment. The fact that this is a honky-tonk song. Basically a song that would be at home in an unpretentious country bar. 
And the way swing relates to that connection is that there's a certain laziness, a reactiveness, rather than a proactiveness that's baked right into the beat. You know what I mean? There is something wobbly, something slurred, something unstable in a swing beat that comes from those slightly off upbeats, especially at this fast tempo. In a word, the song sounds drunk. It's like, go home, long neck bottle, you're drunk. Do you remember how the fast tempo with syncopation had a similar effect and ain't going down till the sun comes up? We talked in that episode about how it felt reckless, like we were riding along in the boyfriend's truck, hanging on for dear life as he took corners on two wheels, right? So it may be instructive here to think a little bit about how this song feels different because of its use of swing rather than syncopation. So the unsteady feeling is there, but not the frantic feel, despite the similar cut time tempo. Long Neck Bottle feels nothing like a road race. Something feels like it's tipping over, but I'd say it's not a truck, but a bar stool. Rain going down to the sun comes up felt forward-leaning and rushed. Long Neck Bottle feels laid back and content. So where the syncopation and ain't going down to the sun comes up felt herky-jerky and unpredictable, like a bucking bronco or a truck outpacing its suspension, the swing in long neck bottle feels seesawy and regular, regular in some overarching way. In other words, while each individual beat may feel unsteady with that delayed upbeat, like the one that's finally going to get your boots out from under you and make you go butt first on the dance floor, the overall rhythm feels comfortable, like the pair of jeans you didn't bother changing out of before you went down to this familiar watering hole. So that's what I feel like this fast western swing is doing. The second key feature that I want to go into here is how this song is a celebration of being lower class. So in addition to being western swing type music, this is honky-tonk music. The song makes it very clear that it's set in a bar, right? The unpretentious country bar, the honky-tonk that we just mentioned. It mentions, actually it directly addresses, which kind of adds to the effect as well, because the person sounds a little off his rocker. Anyway, directly addresses several explicit bar things. One of those is the titular long neck bottle, and every person's drink, if you will, nothing pretentious about that. There is a jukebox, there is a bar room mirror, and there the word bar is explicit. There's swinging doors, and there is a dance floor. So now, the term honky-tonk in music refers to a specific style of country music. But still, the whole idea is that it's the style of music common in honky-tonks. But some of the things that define honky-tonk music are specific instrumentation, especially fiddle and steel guitar. We talked about those two instruments a lot in the Seminole Wind episode, because those instruments, being played without fretting, have a natural continuum of pitches rather than the discrete pitches of, say, a piano. Although the piano is great on this song. In Seminole Wind, those instruments contributed to the plaintive feel of the song because of the natural, mournful, crying sound those sliding pitch changes produced. Same instruments, same characteristic, but in Long Neck Bottle, the effect isn't really crying but slurring. It's part of that go-home, Long Neck Bottle, you're drunk vibe we mentioned earlier. In a way, these bendy pitches imitate singing by someone who isn't quite able to find the right pitch or hold steady on it once they do find it, possibly due to some temporary impairment. And the steel guitar and fiddle are played really bendy in the song. Actually, let's throw Steve Warner's acoustic guitar in this also. You can still skillfully bend a pitch on a guitar, especially if you're the caliber of player of Steve Warner. Let go, my 
So instrumentally, the pitches are just all over the place in this song, and that's a big part of that inebriated vibe the song has. The other part of that is Brooks's vocal delivery. We should pause for a second and talk about this guy's stylistic range. He's got the Billy Joel chameleon thing going on. He adapts his voice to the style of song he's performing, fully and convincingly embracing that style. I mean, just on this podcast, we've heard him do the dangerous, mysterious cowboy thing with Rodeo, the blues rock thing with Ink Going Down to the Sun Comes Up, and now a drunk loser honky-tonk thing in Long Neck Bottle. Hold on to that description because we're going to tease it out a bit more in a moment. But for now, how does Garth Brooks' vocal delivery contribute to the honky-tonk-ness of this song? Part of it is his southern drawly pronunciation. You hear that in the very first note of the song, right? What kind of bottle is it? Not a long neck bottle. Not a long neck bottle, but a long neck bottle. Long Long neck bottle. It's just one example, but all over the song, and I think it's fair to say it's a bit exaggerated for effect, but hold on to that idea. All over the song are these drawly southern pronunciations that situate the song and the bar firmly in the southern United States. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I live in the southern United States myself. I'm a product of the southern United States. But something about that southern drawl and working class seem like they're kind of tied together in minds. But that's one thing. The main thing I hear here in Garth Brooks's vocals is similar to what we just described is going on instrumentally in this song. And that's lots of pitch bends, those scoops we talked about when we were describing twang in the Diamond Rio episode especially. That's a George Strait thing, the quintessential 80s and 90s honky-tonker. It's also a Randy Travis thing. It's a George Jones thing. It's the way, especially guys, usually saying 80s and 90s country music. Vince Gill and actually Steve Warner both being notable exceptions to that. But it's exaggerated here. Listen to how Brooks sings Let Go My Hand, for example. Go my hand. What pitches are those? That's four syllables and about a dozen different pitches, most of them in between notes on the keyboard, unidentifiable. There, and especially in his delivery of some of the higher parts, like the jukebox don't start playing that song again line in the final chorus, sound out of control. If he were an American Idol, Randy Jackson would tell him he's pitchy. And he is, but you don't have to listen any further than Rodeo to know how much vocal control Garth Brooks actually has. His out-of-controlness on this song is a deliberate choice, made because, as I said, Brooks is all about being immersive stylistically, going all in on whatever he's doing. So this song is about being a drunken loser, so I'll be darned if Brooks doesn't sound a little drunk when he sings the song. Now, it will depend on your personal taste whether Brooks crosses that line at the camp on this song or generally, but I like it. Say this about Garth Brooks, even if you're not a fan, which I am. The footsteps we mentioned last episode that Kenny Chesney followed in, he goes big or he goes home. But there was something else I said there, right? Brooks doesn't just sound drunk with his unstable slurred delivery. He sounds like a drunken loser. And that loser part ties back to this overall key feature we're teasing out of being a celebration of being lower class. And that aspect of it is really in the lyrics. Now, if you hear a lot of friends in low places in this song, or in what I'm about to say, let me tell you, I'm right there with you. It would actually be fun to try to read this song as a sequel to Friends in Low Places, come to think of it. Like the protagonist and that song won the class battle 
when he told the woman off at the black tie fair, but he didn't actually have the guts to leave her completely, and now he spends his time with his own class, sure, but his fun is always hamstrung by his connection and commitment to the superior woman back home. Listeners, I'll let you have your own fun running that fan theory to ground if you want. But for our purposes here, let's highlight the more organic connection between those two songs, and that's its reverse classism. In other words, where a classist song would look down on loud, dirty, smelly bars that don't serve cocktails, Long Neck Bottle seems to celebrate that environment. But there is a certain passivity to this celebratory attitude that is why I say the song has not just a drunken vibe, but a drunken loser vibe. You can hear it throughout the song as the singer keeps begging these inanimate objects to release their hold on him. It's right in the first line, right? Long Neck Bottle, let go my hand. Absent from these pleas is any ownership of the problem in the protagonist. He comes off as powerless, as without agency in this conflict he's in. And here's where it sounds most like Friends in Low Places to me. The conflict between the woman he's with and his working class friends at this bar. Side note, I really look forward to getting to Randy Travis's song, Better Class of Losers, on this podcast. It has one of my favorite lines in any country song. But we'll get to that when we get to it. So... One doesn't have to be working class to be a loser, and one doesn't have to be a loser to be working class. I totally get that. But in this song, those ideas seem to be connected, and I think the connection is this. This honky-tonk, this working class bar, gives this decidedly inertia-driven individual the judgment-free zone he needs, either, depending on your point of view, to have him accepted as he is, or to have his destructive behavior reinforced. Let's go with the former, right? Because that's what the song invites. You can feel that in the lighthearted, humorous tone the song takes throughout, which again, fits that swing vibe. And this is a clear theme in our exploration of 80s and 90s country music so far. An unapologetic, celebratory attitude of whatever it's dealing with, which are typically things related to specific places that are often rural, southern, and or working class. How's that for a summary so far? But we have a long way to go in this project. I want to go a lot deeper than that. What nuance is there? What specific elements keep popping up to reinforce these ideas? What other major themes are there that we haven't picked up on yet? In what ways does 80s and 90s country music push back against some of these ideas? Actually, let's sit on that last question for a second as it relates to Long Neck Bottle. I said this song is an unapologetic celebration of laissez-faire attitude by a guy who's found his home in this honky-tonk, but maybe it's not that simple. That light-hearted humor I mentioned does make the song feel a bit tongue-in-cheek, doesn't it? Is this song really celebrating this lovable loser, or is it poking fun at a guy who can't seem to take his hand off a bottle long enough to be present with his family who needs him? Because this song is kind of the opposite of I'm Gonna Be Somebody, isn't it? And that was a song without a shred of irony in it to be found. It was also a song that came out much earlier in this decade, and that could be telling. Hmm. Maybe there's something more going on here. But we'll get to that. Right now, let's recap Long Neck Bottle. We talked about two key features of this song. The first is that the rhythm is a fast swing, a western swing rhythm. And that did a couple of things. That made the song super dancey, especially at its fast tempo and some of the specific rhythmic things that were going on instrumentally. And the second was a large part of what makes the song feel off-kilter 
The word is drunk. It makes the song feel drunk. That carries over into the second key feature we talked about, which is that the song is a celebration, maybe a tongue-in-cheek celebration, of being lower class. We talked about how the song is clear honky-tonk music and how specific honky-tonk elements like fiddles and steel guitars, again, contribute to that slurred, inebriated overall sound that the song has. That also carries over into Brooks's vocal delivery, which is decidedly southern and decidedly drawly and decidedly bendy and, in a word, drunk sounding. And finally, we talked about how the protagonist in this song is, at least in the eyes of someone of higher socioeconomic class, a bit of a loser. Someone who doesn't own his condition, but rather sees his condition as happening to him. The opposite of what we saw and I'm going to be somebody. And the song's attitude toward the protagonist feels celebratory, but maybe isn't quite that straightforward. But at any rate, the song is firmly set in a working class environment that the protagonist fits right into. And that's really key to making this song what it is. So let's place the cap back on Long Neck Bottle and see what song we'll be gulping down next time on Nashville Anthems. I'm going to pull up Satellite Radio's 80s and 90s country station right now and see what's playing. The song is by another Brooks, not Garth Brooks, but Brooks and Dunn. The song is maybe my favorite Brooks and Dunn song. I love this song. The song is Neon Moon. I look forward to exploring that with you in two weeks. Until then... You can email me at meltonmcmainerberry at gmail.com. Tell me all the ways I got this song and I'm getting 80s and 90s country music wrong. Or you can find me on Instagram and do the same. See you in two weeks. I gotta go. I got something on my hand.